The Camby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. and there are 589 days until the Vancouver Municipal Elections. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. What a show we have for you this evening. It is filled with contentious council emotions, drama in the courtrooms, and a Vancouverada about one of Vancouver's, and indeed the world's weirdest buildings. But first, in order for such citizen journalism to continue, we must, as always, remind you of patreon.com slash Report. Patreon.com slash Report. Yes, that is patreon.com slash Report, the go-to place for citizen journalism in Metro Vancouver. Please continue to or start supporting the show. It is essential for us to bring you this type of reporting and aggregation of news stories. And we thank you for your support if you already have done so and hope that the excellent perks that you receive, such as our access to our Slack channel, are worth it. Well, and it goes to support the work that we're doing behind the scenes. We are starting to file FOI requests, and some of those are not free. So you're, you are literally funding journalism. You are helping us bring news to you. At least we're trying to. We will hopefully have some stories of our own to break soon. But just before we even get into this, can I just like vent for 30 seconds or so? I was going to ask, how goes the hunt? I would not recommend buying a home right now unless you have just like obscene amounts of money to throw away. I think since we last talked, we made offers on four properties. We got one, but the first three were pretty hellish. There was the one that was written up for the Burnaby Now where we were one of 43 people putting an offer on a Vancouver special in Burnaby. Oh, wow. That's a lot of people trying to spend 1.3 million or more dollars when the winner spent 300000 over asking. Holy crap. Yeah, it was a little wild. There were at least like five to ten different buyers, including us, who had home inspectors going in before making offers because we all knew it was going to be a no-subject kind of offer kind of situation. If you wanted to get it, you had to go, here's a bunch of cash. We just assume it'll be fine. It's really stressful. Yeah. After that, there was the place that we thought we were pretty sure on because they'd been on the market a little bit longer. So we put an offer in on that. And then in the time we had our offer open for, someone came in, toured it, put a cash offer on the table, and they accepted it without coming back to us. So we got screwed. Wow. That's like the, the rental tour where like the rat scurries through the kitchen and you're on the rental tour with like two other people and one of them just applies and pays in front of you. Yeah, except we didn't even get to find out until the place was gone, which is just like our realtor was pretty pissed. Yeah, that that is like some professional discourtesy, if nothing else. And then we ended up just buying a single family home in Coquitlam. So going forward, my views are going to change quite radically. I am now very in favor of <laughs> keeping things the way they are. Yeah. Change is a bit scary. You know, neighborhoods have character. This is important. We need to protect that. I'm worried about traffic. And I'm the left-wing one now. 
Yeah, property taxes. I mean, don't get me started. Speaking of potential swings of position, the Michael Weeb lawsuit has chugged its way through a Victoria courtroom, and two days of hearings resulted in a adjournment for two months. So the justice will next be available as the justice is seized of the case, which means that like there can't be another justice hearing it until May or June. That is not uncommon and is reflected of a federal issue, which is that the federal government needs to appoint more judges quickly because they just haven't been doing that. And it is a problem. It's worth pausing on that for a second, right? This is a vote that happened, I think, a year ago now, roughly, and it's still not close to being decided whether or not that vote was legal. It's going to be the election by the time we know whether or not Michael Weeb should still be a counselor. Yeah, and that that is a, a disservice to both Michael Weeb and to his constituents and to those like petitioners who like arguably are well I, I question the good faith, as did the judge of, of the petition, but we'll get to that. The like whether or not Vancouver is represented by someone who has acted with a conflict of interest, and that is an issue. It's not like the legislation was at all designed to be read specifically to a speedy conclusion of, of this type of uh, conflict of interest situation. It is like very problematic, and I think really a black mark against the federal government that they haven't been able to solve this problem because it is just a vetting and appointments one. But coming back to the two days of hearing so far, you did manage to catch a little bit of it. Yes, I managed Any juicy to tidbits. first day, which had one of the most choice morsels of information, which is the exclusion of the lawyer's report that was arguably the, the thing that triggered this whole scenario. Everything in that report, except for the fact that the report was made, so that, that effectively set out the 45-day time period for the petition to be filed, and the evidence within the report, which could then be admitted as a fact-finding by the court, were excluded. So like the actual conclusion reached by the lawyer who was writing it was deemed to be not a decision, but rather advice, and the court and the justice, in his wisdom, found that he was the decider of the course of action and not a lawyer, which is, of course, the the case in every instance. Lawyers don't decide, lawyers argue. This was effectively an argument and not a decision. Like, when it's put out that way, it makes a lot of sense, right? It seems like this should be something considered. Here's a finding. It's a formal investigation. It's an inquiry. But it's not an open court process, right? We have a justice system built a certain way on a number of principles and individual reports done by individual lawyers aren't always following those principles to the T. And so let's let our justice system do what it is built to do. Exactly. And that that is to reach a conclusion. And that conclusion will, of course, not be forthcoming for some time. Urgency of the case notwithstanding. I suppose it isn't like urgent, urgent, but it is, it does feel kind of urgent. It does feel like the legislation contemplated some urgency here. So it, it is a little aggravating to see that the case has been adjourned so long. Beyond that, one of the arguments that was made in court, the submissions that were made by Mr. Weeb's lawyer, were that the petition 
was launched with heavy influence from a political party and that conflict of interest laws are not intended to provide a vehicle for partisan disputes. I actually am not necessarily of the same mind on this because conflict of interest laws are like everything is political and I, I think that partisan disputes are simply a manifestation of the debates that we have amongst ourselves. But it is, is something that the judge will be considering as the judge is, of course, the decider. Like, I get the argument the lawyer is trying to make there that these people aren't coming in good faith and they're trumping up something that is not a big issue, potentially, from their point of view. You know, I do agree with you that, like, the people who are going to complain about a partisan actor are probably going to be partisans themselves. And that shouldn't preclude them from making complaints to the courts. In fact, everyone should be able to petition the court for whatever yeah. they feel. And the justice has the, you know, ability to decide. Yeah, and I actually look rather sympathetically on the fact that the MPA board members chose to put themselves as the petitioners in the petition rather than another, like just to round up 10 random people that, that they happen to know and have them be the the stalking horse for this particular motion because it's clearly them that are bringing the petition. It's clearly them that are involved in the MPA and they were presenting this entirely without, you know, subterfuge or deceit. It's either honesty or just like political naivety. Yeah, yeah. One can certainly double for the other, but I am choosing to read this one charitably, which admittedly is a first for me in the recent NPA. <laughs> so still a long road ahead of us before we learn the fate of Michael Weeb. Yes. In other uh, applications news, the mayor has submitted a preliminary application with Health Canada for decriminalization in the city of Vancouver. On March the 1st, paperwork was sent to Health Canada that was based on consultation with Vancouver Coastal Health and the Vancouver Police Department. This document, well, we assume, and the mayor's office says, it is asking for a particular decriminalization of drug offenses within the city of Vancouver. We don't actually know what it says specifically because it isn't being released. Alvin Singh, spokesperson for the mayor, told CTV News that Quote, the current plan wouldn't apply penalties or sanctions, but would instead see police determine if a person is in possession of drugs for personal use and possibly provide a voluntary referral to Vancouver Coastal Health overdose outreach team, which to me sounds like police are still heavily involved in dealing with drug users, which may not give them like the criminal tools, but there are a lot of tools police use to harass people. Yeah, and I, like I'm not exactly sure whether or not this is going to change the, the status quo in any meaningful way, though I'm not sure that the city really has the power to change the status quo in any meaningful way. I think it's, it's worthwhile to note that like it's the province that has jurisdiction over the policing power, and the federal government who has jurisdiction over specifically the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Decriminalization within the city would, I, I mean, be a bit of an exception to the equal protection of the laws provisions in the Constitution, but is not the first time that that has happened. However, we think that you have a right to know what the city is saying on our behalf in a court of law. And so what have we done? We're asking for that application. And if and when we get it, we're going to tell you about it. You know, I thought 
this application was interesting and it's worth mentioning, right? Because we've, we slammed Kennedy initially for the council motion that was like, he will write a letter saying we should have this. And then here, this is a substantive step, right? This is actually talking to Health Canada, not just in a meeting, but actually putting forward steps to what Vancouver wants. They're even calling it the Vancouver model. How good it is remains to be seen, but you know, I'm kind of mixed here. Good on the city for moving forward on this. So it's a better Vancouver model than like the one that international white collar crime police used for Vancouver, which is just let the white collar crime happen in our casinos. Just let the money laundering happen. Or the real estate model that I just talked about off the top. So that will, of course, be coming down the catwalk at some time in the near future. And we will keep you abreast of that uh, as the situation develops. A new situation that is developing at Metro Vancouver is that at the recent Metro Vancouver board meeting on February 26, there was a motion to increase voting thresholds for the repurposing of industrial land uses to other forms from one-half to two-thirds. This would uh, change the percentage required on uh, the Metro Vancouver Regional District Board uh, that would be required to repurpose any industrial land. There is actually a significant threat to industrial land in Metro Vancouver, and we tend to lose acreage of industrial land at a kind of alarming rate. Vancouver itself has a kind of alarmingly low percentage of industrial land remaining, but apparently other cities look upon Vancouver and go green with envy because Surrey went ballistic. Almost every Surrey councillor that was on the Metro Vancouver board spoke against the motion, and in particular Mayor McCallum called the motion sneaky and underhanded, and then also and this is where things got a little weird, use the words dictatorship multiple times. Let's play the clip. We'll go to Director McCallum. Next, Director McCallum. Thank you very much, Chair. Um, I just have to say, on all my years, 12 years on this Metro board, uh, this, this particular motion absolutely disgusts me. I am absolutely furious with this thing being brought through. It sort of even was sneaky brought through um, as part of another motion. Um, And, you know, Surrey's not going to stand for this. We're livid. Our staff are livid. It's unconstitutional. It's undemocratic. It's dictator-type system. And Surrey really is not going to put up with it. And, and I just want to finish by saying that um, this type of sneaky dictator type of land use um, policy that's been put through in Metro has to go. Otherwise, we're going to have a, have a Metro that is going to be completely broken apart. This is the start of, if this passes, this is the start of the breakup of Metro. That's how important land use in this Metro area is. And so we're livid at this, and, and we are not. Surrey, including our staff, are livid at it because we got a report from our staff. Um, we're not going to put up with this kind of attitude from Metro. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Well, that's quite something. You know, I don't tend to think of industrial land reform in Vancouver as akin to, I don't know, Stalinist collectivization, but 
maybe I mean, that's that, where we that are. That was also a land reform. Anyway, Mitch, <laughs> the chair of the regional planning committee, Jonathan X. Cote from New Westminster, motivated the motion. Apparently, this motion had some contention in the committee itself, and while Metro Vancouver tends to operate at consensus, this one was voted out of committee by majority vote. Notable in favor was Mayor Rob Vagramoff, who cited a number of industrial lands in the city of Port Moody being repurposed to build condo towers. Ultimately, the motion failed. Ultimately, the motion passed. Well, other things that came up quite controversially Back in the city of Vancouver, the Development Permit Board, a kind of lesser discussed element of the planning bureaucracy, rejected the first building it's rejected since 2017 when it rejected 105 Kiefer. And prior to that, it hadn't rejected a project since 2006. The building under consideration was an 11-story mixed-use building at the corner of Arbutus and Broadway on the old Shell gas station. And I actually used to live right near there. Great spot for a new low mid-rise tower when the SkyTrain is going to be terminating and hopefully continuing past there in the next few years. This is a bit weird because, like I said, this board doesn't tend to reject things. The website for it describes the development permit board as one that considers applications that have significant importance because of the scale complexity or public interest and they basically look at major developments so rather than just going by the director of planning or staff this is a board to actually consider bigger projects this was a bigger project like i said 11 stories 120 feet tall 79 condo units with 4800 square foot of retail where this got controversial, it sounds like, is the building existing zoning for that area limits it to 70 feet, and this building at 120 exceeds that. The development permit board, it sounds like, though, is restricted to not approve things that don't fit within zoning. Now, all the urbanists listening are going to be mad because you can just imagine that an 11-story building beside a SkyTrain station is what we want. We want to see development along the Broadway corridor. And once the city plan and the Broadway plan come through, likely this would have been approved. But it seems like perhaps the applicants were a little too eager to apply for this spot. Yeah, in general, city bureaucrats are not people with like tons of discretion, even in applications that come to the Board of Variance, which I sit on, something that has gone through the Director of Planning, been found to not be in confirmation with the existing bylaws as they are written, and has to ask for a relaxation. The Board of Variance, which is made up of, of citizens who are appointed by city councils, so there's dem democratic legitimacy through the elected members of city council who appoint us. They are the ones who are allowed to vary the laws, whereas city staff are required to simply uh, approve or not approve the application as presented based on the bylaws. The city staff will occasionally come to the Board of Variants and say the city takes no position on this and leaves it up to the Board of Variants for its discretion. Its normal position is that the Director of Planning opposes the application and asks the Board of Variants to uphold its decision. Development that came before the Development Permit Board 
didn't see a lot of public opposition. There were three speakers, two representing strata units in the area who opposed the approval of this. Two of them specifically mentioned the height of it as a concern and typical other concerns about parking and noise disturbances to their units nearby. But ultimately, I think, like we discussed, it was pretty much a zoning issue. And until council changes this area, this project's going to have to get shrunk down. Yeah, we live in a democracy, and democracies have laws passed by democratically elected people. The city staff should not be able to override those laws, much as we might want them to on a case-by-case basis so, so badly. It is still probably for the best that this is left to our city council, gridlocked though it may be. Speaking of gridlock, city council spent 11 hours debating a different building in Kitsilano recently, but ultimately approved it. Yeah, less gridlock and more just a really bad traffic jam. After 11 hours in public meetings and 650 letters, and Councillor Christine Boyle asking why, 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 finally a six-story rental building was approved in Vancouver. 35 units. It took 11 hours. 20% of the units of this building are for moderate income earners. I think it's part of the MERP program. Uh, Controversial building in the area because It's Kitsilano and people like opposing things, although there was significant support for it as well. It became kind of a lightning rod, which then just managed to swamp City Hall. There is a plaque, a heritage plaque, near the corner of 4th and McDonald that commemorates the people who laid down in front of bulldozers to stop the demolition of single-family homes in favor of building the missing middle. And every time I walk by that corner, I think, you people, we could have had an affordable city. I mean, probably not because it is still Vancouver, but it it is something to be remembered that this type of opposition has left us in the mess that we are. Boyle gets a special shout out here from us because she was quite outspoken after this approval. She spoke out on social media asking why this took so long, and she told News 1130 that her position is it should be easier to build the type of housing that we need than it is to build the type of housing that we know we don't need more of. I wish it were easier to build secure rental and moderate income rental housing than it is to build condos, that it is easier to build rental than it is to build more large single detached homes. Yeah, and that is going to be a continual problem in Vancouver. And unfortunately, it's not the kind of problem that breaking laws is able to fix, even though people tend to break laws with, like, as as I see on the board, kind of reckless abandon in this city. People will often build additions or cut down trees when they are not supposed to. And it kind of leaves me wondering whether all this planning is really for the best, but that is a a kind of broader discussion. It it just leaves me thinking that over-regulation kind of inevitably leads to a black or gray market. And I'm not sure that that is what the city wants. I think that when you are regulating your citizens to the point where they just throw up their hands and start breaking the law is effectively the same situation that the U.S. saw, and also Canada, I suppose, in Prohibition during the 20s. Well, what allowed us to go from looking at townhomes to single-family homes and duplexes in Metro Van was the reality that when you look at a place with a secondary suite, you can 
get a bigger mortgage for that because the bank will look at it and go, oh, there's potential rental income there. We're not going to be landlords so much as we're going to use it for in-laws to come stay with us and family to come stay with us. But it opened up this whole world that I wasn't fully aware of that an absurd amount of secondary suites in Metro Van, like 80-90% potentially, are these unauthorized, illegal, unpermitted suites that people just add on. Cities like here in Burnaby, the city just doesn't even care. Other cities, it's like, if you complain, you could have inspectors come and then you have to get them permitted. But in generally, inspectors just turn a blind eye. You know, we got one email from someone recently who was like, why don't they just allow all of these? And it's like, well, the rules do have a point in that renters shouldn't have dodgy, sketchy, unsafe apartments or secondary suites. But there is also this clear failure of the system we have when almost no one is following the rules. Yeah, and like, admittedly, this kind of goes to my my theory that most laws in Canada are really just manifestations on a theme of don't cause a ruckus, where, like, if there is a problem, the government wants the law to be in place so that it can bring the hammer down, but if there is no problem, it can just leave the homes unregulated or the, you know, drinking on the beach to happen, as long as there is no trouble being caused. However, if, you know, a situation like the Sohota Hotels springs up, then the city has the tools to act. However, I think that the corollary to that is that the city has to realize when the don't cause a ruckus legislation is being enforced too vigorously or the rules are too tight and force everyone outside the law. However, it is not only in Vancouver that six-story buildings are controversial. New West residents also wanted to kill a six-story building in their city, where over 1,000 people signed a petition to council to reject an application from the Aboriginal Land Trust Society to rezone a stretch of 6th Avenue for a 96-unit six-story apartment. This looks like a really good project. It's good intended to provide affordable multi-generational and multicultural homes for members of New West urban indigenous and Swahili communities. Looks like it'll be a nice addition to the, you know, upper New West area. But again, it's in a very single family home neighborhood where people go, Ooh, that seems like a lot. Yeah. And I couldn't also help but notice the fact that this is a very specific project aiming to, you know, represent two marginalized groups in our community. Yeah, that didn't escape me, and it probably didn't escape the uh, signers of the petition, though maybe for different reasons. Not that I am trying to cast aspersions on said signers. I'm sure they just wanted to maintain neighborhood character. I will say this. I went to through the New West record. There's a link to their group's website, and they have like an FAQ where they've answered random questions, and someone asks something about like the race question essentially and they say you know we want buildings for all new west residents not just two communities Mm, yeah but like if you do the solution to that isn't stopping the building but rather starting this and many many others specific types of rental housing are are good especially for small communities where many families can like instead of being dispersed around the greater area in some sort of like 
generalized diaspora can actually congregate together. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, given how the Metro Vancouver real estate market is today, the only way that is financially viable to do that is to build fresh and in a land assembly in a multi-story building. I don't have any sense yet of how New West Council is leaning on this. A 1,000 person petition though on a smaller city like New West is, I'm going to assume, going to carry some weight. So hopefully if you're a New West listener and you like this project, we'll throw a link to a little bit more info in the show notes. Get in touch with your councillors. Another thing that people might want to raise with their councillors that they might want to direct their ire at, in fact, admittedly, this is Vancouver Coastal Health, but it is the fact that a downtown east side population was not warned by Vancouver Coastal Health about a dysentery outbreak in their community. I've had dysentery. It is horrible. 24 residents contracted dysentery. 16 were sent to hospital, presumably with dehydration. It is like unconscionable that this has happened. And eventually, Karen Ward spoke with Jen St. Dennis. She was told by a local doctor via a Twitter direct message. Yeah, Ward, we've had on the podcast before, and she's a strong advocate for people on the downtown east side for drug users. She works with the city of Vancouver right now, and she is attuned to everything. And so for her to find out about a dysentery outbreak via direct message, I, I imagine riled her justly. So naturally she raised hell, according to Jen St. Dennis, with Vancouver Coastal Health, with City Hall staff, with counselors she knew. And finally, a couple days later, Vancouver Coastal Health finally put notice to some of the housing and shelter organizations they work with in the downtown east side that, hey, dysentery's kind of breaking out in the community. Just be aware of that. Though, as far as they could tell, there wasn't a full public alert issued. This is notable because, like, dysentery can leave someone incapacitated. Like, you can be unable to move inside your home and no one would be able to help you. So if you start having symptoms of dysentery, it is important to act fast and get yourself to somewhere where you can get antibiotics uh, and rehydrated. Yeah, so this was reported in the TAI on March 3rd, and the first case of dysentery was picked up on January 31st. So, you know, over a month it took to get this word out. But do better? We need our health system to do better. Yeah. We've seen that through COVID. We've seen that through everything. Yeah. And like, well, well, they have certainly been carrying a Herculean load during the COVID epidemic. They can't drop balls like this. Like you, you have to, you have to be on top of things and notifying people about an outbreak like this is absolutely essential. And they have kind of fallen down on the job. Not enough change has come. Another area where not enough change has come, cops in Vancouver schools, they are still there. Longtime listeners and people will remember the start of last summer. There was a wave of Black Lives Matter protests started following the killing of George Floyd in the U.S., but it spread around the world, including here in Metro Vancouver, as people of color, Black Indigenous people of color, raised justly the alarm at how racist our society is and started questioning the role and amount of resources we put into the police systems and what we're actually getting for that, which is often just violence against those communities. 
it came up obviously that a number of school boards including vancouver school board have strong relationships with police where they have these school liaison officers who kind of just hang out in high schools and try to in one view put on a good face between the cops and students and possibly in another view lead a school to prison pipeline yeah is it the role of the police department to be doing public relations for itself in the schools i don't know that it is i think they should be more leading by example and demonstrating that they are worthy of trust rather than actively promoting themselves and perhaps even continuing to marginalize specific groups this is like it's it's just sort of disappointing you, you kind of see this over and over with police reform where a large event that raises public attention will take place and people will get all irate and then as public attention fades the police unions will step in and other advocates and they will start stymieing any calls for reform yeah at the school board there was a lot of discussion about this issue last summer i think it ultimately came down to some pretty close votes that decided to defer any decisions until more study had been done that study included a consultation outsourced to the firm Argyle PR, who recently completed that, and that's why it's back in the news. They were given two and a half weeks to do an online survey of students and staff and school members. It was intended to focus largely on the experiences of Black, Indigenous, people of color students. They got 8% of their respondents were BIPOC, and those people had more negative feelings about cops in schools than the rest of the respondents. That's shocking. Somewhat unsurprisingly. I am shocked. The District Parent Advisory Council and Teachers Unions have both called for the school liaison program to be cancelled. There is going to be a special meeting on Monday to consider public comment on the report. So if you are interested in whether or not police continue to have a presence in Vancouver schools, we encourage you to attend that meeting, presumably virtually, as, as public meetings are still Verboten. The District Policy and Governance Committee is going to report on feedback at the April 7th meeting. And then the school board will finally consider all of this feedback and make some decisions about the school liaison program on April 26th. So still another almost month to go, but maybe some resolution to this question soon. Yeah, and I think it's worthwhile to just keep this current and up-to-date and we will be following this issue as it develops and certainly be reporting on the final recommendations. I'm going to try and attend the, the Vancouver School Board public meeting at the, to see what the general tenor is, and hopefully we'll have some news from that in our next episode. In other news, Christine Boyle has called for Vancouver to adopt the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and work with MST uh, nations on the implementation thereof. At a motion coming to Monday's council meeting, she's put forward that the city of Vancouver adopts UNDRIP the same way the province has and the federal government is working on. I know they have a bill. I don't know if the bill has passed yet because bills do not move fast under the Justin Trudeau liberal governments. No. What's interesting about this approach is Christine Boyle's really talked up and talked about how this has come forward from discussions with people like Squamish Councillor Salem 
and others within the Musqueam, Squamish, and Salatooth nations, and that this is a way that, that the city can really advance reconciliation beyond just words. Now, the motion itself would just approve words, but it would set forward steps that the city should work together with these other stakeholders and partners and create a new task force to implement it where the city is an equal partner with the three nations. Yeah, and it's worth noting that that this is not the only area in regional governments where this type of motion has been brought forward. At the Metro Vancouver meeting, there was also a uh, question of whether or not Metro Vancouver should be working with local First Nations to implement UNDRIP with consultation with its local Indigenous groups. There was some question on whether or not the Métis Nation was going to be included in that, and Metro Vancouver staff said that it was not, as they are not local. But eventually that motion was adopted. Beyond like the symbolic motions and the frameworks that these set up, like we can see with how the Sanok development is going in the Vanier Park area and the, at the Burrard Street Bridge, that there is a lot of opportunity here. You know, there's also the Jericho lands that are being uh, developed. There are a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of positives that can come about from this. And working towards reconciliation can be to the benefit of everyone. So I, I suspect this will pass pretty favorably with council. Council's overwhelmingly pretty supportive of reconciliation, at least in words. Where it goes from there will be what to watch, I think. Also watchable at City Council is the Don't Feed the Wildlife motion brought forward by Councillor Pete Fry. I love that it's literally titled that. I'm not even mocking it when I put it in the show notes. It's, it's just Don't Feed the Wildlife. The question is whether or not Vancouver would join the Parks Board, the federal government, and other bodies around the region in prohibiting the intentional feeding of wildlife. If, if the motion passes, it would direct staff to report on the authority to prepare a bylaw, because, of course, you wouldn't want to just make a recommendation. You want a report on the authority to make a bylaw. You know what? To be fair, all levels of government could probably do a little bit more, like, checking that their laws are constitutional before passing them. <sighs> that is fair. I, I grudgingly admit that that is fair, but... I feel like that is not the Vancouver problem. I feel like the Vancouver problem is uh, too many steps. If they do get the authority or do think they have the authority, then staff will be advised to draft the bylaw to allow city staff to ticket you if you feed any animal other than a hummingbird, I think with like a liquid feeder on your deck or songbirds. Yeah. So you can still have a bird feeder. And this, as I noted earlier, would not be the first area uh, that would prohibit the feeding of wildlife. For example, in our oceans, you are not allowed to approach or feed marine mammals, so no feeding of the killer whales allowed. Also, Vancouver Parks Board, you may have noticed, has signs up that read, intentional feeding of wildlife is considered to be indirect animal cruelty by the BCSPCA, which is like a weird area of law because it's the only type of law that is enforced by a private organization. The SPCA has, is a whole weird area of law. There's a whole podcast, animal law podcast by Peter Sankoff on that. It's worth a listen to just to get a sense. You go, it veers a bit vegan for me at times because I'm not, but I, I appreciate the sense of just like 
It's very. Oh, our vegan. laws are really weird. It's it's very vegan, but it is worth listening to an episode or two to just sort of get a idea of how strange the laws are. Maybe not how bad the laws are, because you know I think we do an okay job, but it, it is the weirdest area of like enforcement that I think any area of law has. Regardless, the SBCA does want the city of Vancouver to prohibit the feeding of animals within city lands. There have been an increase, I think, of issues with coyotes in the city. Probably worth discouraging people from feeding raccoons and bunny rabbits and anything else they find that may be small prey for those. So, yeah, don't feed the animals. Yeah, in fact, it's because there has been a number of coyote attacks that I, I believe this motion is coming forward. There were instances of, of coyotes in Stanley Park that have been arguably triggered by the running or uh, cycling motions of users of the park as no walkers have been attacked, but a number of, of cyclists and bikers have had nips taken at them. Which is, of course, notable because <laughs> there is a motion to get bike lanes back in Stanley Park. Yeah, last summer at the start of the pandemic, people in the city will recall that there was a big effort to open up additional space for pedestrians, for cyclists, for people to get outside because that was the safest and still is the safest place to be in the midst of a pandemic. The park board therefore closed one lane of the two-lane one-way street that circles Stanley Park and opened it up to bikes so that those cyclists could get off the seawall, which is not big enough on a normal day for cyclists and pedestrians. No. And it was a big hit. Yeah, like we were advocates of, of maintaining that. The horse-drawn carriage folks were not, and ultimately the horse-drawn carriage folks uh, prevailed and the bike lanes were removed. However, hopefully as summer approaches once again and we realize that this pandemic thing is going to continue to be an issue. We may want to look at bringing them back. So the Vancouver Greens have a petition up, and you can support their petition if you support the opening of bike lanes in Stanley Park. You can also write to your park board commissioner. Now it is time for Vancouverada. Every show we end the uh, episode with an interesting tidbit from Vancouver's history, and this is a... Very interesting one indeed. Jack Chow Insurance, not only the world's narrowest building, which is such a weird, such a weird claim to fame, but also the only building in the world where the sign is wider than the building. Yeah, Jack Chow was born, I think, in Cumberland, BC, moved to Metro Vancouver, ran a number of different businesses, and eventually got into the insurance business. He bought this building on Pender Street in Chinatown in just before Expo 1986. The building was originally called the Sam Key Building. It was built by someone named Chang Toy, who owned this property, but the city expropriated most of it to widen Pender Street. He was left pretty bitter about this by the fact his remaining land was just six feet wide and 96 feet long. And he was so mad that he decided to not sell the rest. He was like, I'm going to keep this. He felt he was too lowballed by not expropriating the whole lot. And so he got architects to design him a six foot wide structure, 
with bay windows that overhung over the street on the second floor. This entire story is about like how people hate City Hall. Yeah, I love this because it reminds me of, of how bitter people can get and how petty City Hall can be. There is a mosaic in in New York where it just reads, this is the only spot of X address that has not been dedicated for public purposes. And it's just this little triangle that's about 10 inches on each side that has a mosaic embedded in it. The rest of the lot was expropriated, but the guy uh, who owned that little bit of the triangle was, as I understand, also stiffed by City Hall in not expropriating the whole lot and built a mosaic there for posterity. So to continue the fights with City Hall, Chow bought the building for 150000 and put another $250,000 in renovations into it. He wanted to get walk-ups to these bay windows so that people could come from the outside because there wasn't enough room inside the building to have proper stairs up to every window. City Hall wanted to charge $260 per year in taxes for the airspace being used. He just said no and kept fighting them until they eventually reduced that fee to a dollar a year. And because the postage was too much, they just waived the fee entirely and he won. That turned out pretty good for him in the last year because those walk-ups meant people could approach the insurance windows pretty safely during a pandemic because they didn't have to come into the narrowest building in the world. Yeah, narrowest building in the world, not great for social distancing. So rest in peace, Jack Chow, a veritable piece of Vancouver history and Guinness World Record holder for narrowest building in the world. That brings us to the end of the March 5th, 2021 edition of the Camby Report. Uh, I am Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Good night.